Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. What if there was no God? First of all, you'd say, well, we wouldn't be here. That's the good answer, right? But but there is a way of thinking in the world that says, no, matter has existed eternally, and we've all come from primordial soup. And so we would be here without a God in the world, and matter is the eternal thing, um, along with some energy and, and, you know, all of the things that had to happen to make life, and then billions of years, and here we are. Hope would not exist. I mean... I mean, these are basic things, but have you ever thought about that? I mean, hope would not exist. What would you hope in? What would you hope in? Webster's definition of hope, to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or be true. Well, I guess you could have hope in material things. What is, you, what is the difference between having hope in material things outside of God and having hope in God The primary difference there, the the factor that separates them both so clearly, is that all the things in the material world, whether it be um, your career, your marriage, your children, your health, um, anything that you've, uh, any status that you've attained, uh, any worldly wealth that you've come to amass, all perishes. You say, well, that's not a very good way to talk about my children, my marriage, but, but that's just the truth. It, it perishes. We, we will all perish someday. Someday I will cease to be a pastor because I'll be taken home. So when we have hope, and Christmas is the time of when we think about having hope, it's, it's the Advent season, right? We, we're kind of spending, we're going to spend the next few weeks in this idea of, of anticipating the coming of the king, right, as a baby. We said this word last week, the, the word Advent in the Latin went uh, ad, adventatus. Um, this idea that we're expecting, we're longing, we're looking for the coming. In the Greek, it's the, the parousa, the, the coming, Right? Now, we think that there's more than one. Obviously, there's the coming as a, as, a, as a baby here in the Bethlehem. There's the second coming, which we talked about last week, this waiting for the, for the second coming of God to come. And then there's the coming into our heart, right, where God decides to, to make a new creation, to, make, to transform us by taking residence and giving his Holy Spirit to us, to, to live in us, to, to be a seal, as Paul says, of the gospel, of the truth, of our salvation. But see, our hope that is placed there never perishes. It lasts eternally. It it is good forever and ever and ever. Every other place that we place hope will not last. That doesn't mean that we we shouldn't desire those things. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't want good things and and desire to be healthy, desire to have a good job or to to have wonderful children. But ultimately, one of the things that we struggle with, especially in the Western world, is to be, be placing our hope in things that God never intended our hope to be. We should have joy in those things. We should have wonderful, um, 
experiences and all that God has given us for, his, for our enjoyment. We enjoy our marriage. We enjoy our children. But our hope is in Christ. And so as we begin this celebration of the season, I just want to kind of go there. I know last week was kind of heavy. You know, Christ is coming again, and, and you need to be, you know, one of you are going to either be taken or you're going to be left, right? And, and so there was this clear delineating of what, what the end looks like, that we're going to be either found in Christ or we're not going to be found in Christ. It was, it was a pretty direct message. And I don't want to kind of turn it today and say, but, but there's incredible hope that God has given us that we will not be left, that, that we will be the one that is taken. We will be the one that will spend eternity with him forever. And so the question then that, that it begs is, so why do we need this hope? This is the, the age-old question. Why do we need this hope? Um, why is it necessary? Why is it important? Well, ultimately because sin. Because we're without hope with sin. In humanity, in, in our rebellion, is, is without hope in sin. If we have no way to escape the, the penalty of sin, we're without hope. It's that simple. We can have a great job. We can have a great family. We can, we can amass a great amount of wealth. We can have all of that. We can, we can do all of that. And yet at the end of the day, death comes for everyone, short of God returning. So where's your hope in that moment? Because it can't be any of those other things because they've all going to perish when you die. And so our hope ultimately needs to be in Christ. Paul kind of says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. He's here, he's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and, and some of them believe in the resurrection of the dead, some don't. And, and so he's just kind of working through this with them in the, the early church. And, and I just want to read this, this piece of this text in chapter 15, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, because if there is no resurrection, basically, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. No hope, right? Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So he's just, he's just drawing the picture here. He's saying, if Christ has not been raised, there is no resurrection from the dead. If that's true, then that means that those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, even though they maybe have professed Christ, they have perished, right? Which means that they are not in, with God in heaven because there is no hope, there is no resurrection. And then he says this, he says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are all of the most to be pitied. We are all of all people most to be pitied. He's basically saying is, look, if, if, we have, if we have placed our trust and our hope in Christ, that he's defeated death and he's risen from the dead, and that when we die, that we will be raised with him in, in eternal life, if that is not true, we are most of all people to be pitied because we have placed our hope in a false thing. And so today... I want to spend some time encouraging you from the scripture to say that, that we don't need to be pitied because the resurrection is true. Our hope is, is grounded not in, not in a fairy tale. Our hope is grounded in a person, in, in, in history, in, in theological truth, 
in prophecy fulfilled. It is just rich with, with truth and, and evidence. But yet many of us, because we're not rooted in Scripture, we don't dig in and we don't see some of these things. And so hopefully today as we dive in, we're going to see that a little bit. But I was thinking about how God gives us hope throughout Scripture and, and some of the evidence of it. And, and we're going to look today, and obviously, in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to look at that text and see what we can, what is Isaiah saying here, right? We'll dive into that here in a minute. But before we do that, I, I got to thinking about where is some place, where's like the, one of the first places, it may not be the first place, but where's the first place in Scripture that God provides us hope? Right? So we're in the garden. When we say we, metaphorically, we as humanity is in the garden. We're represented by Adam and Eve, and, and they're in the garden. And, and we've said this multiple times. God says, you know, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. You'll surely die. Right? You'll be separated from me forever. And we know that they did. And so then what we see is, is that they've, they've come and they've, they've, God has asked where they're at and they've been hiding and they've been covered with fig leaves and God makes some coats of skin and all these things. And all of a sudden in, in, in 15, or chapter 3, verse 15, God now says, okay, because of this, here's what the punishment is going to be. And I'm not going to go into the punishment of the man and the woman, but I'm going to talk just briefly about the punishment of the serpent. And I want, you to con- I want you to see if you can see where the hope is. Okay, now just think about what happened. Humanity has sinned and been separated from God forever. That's a pretty big deal. They've been cast out of the garden and they're going to die physically. And they've been separated from God. They're spiritually dead. There's going to be separation. And so you think, well, how long is it going to take before God gives us some hope? Right? I mean, like, what is our chance to get reconciled? What's our hope here? Where's it at? Right? I think it's right away in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, what is the word enmity? Some of you may not know what that, that means. A division that will never be reconciled. It's not just a, it's not something that will be um, negotiated and worked out. No, an enmity is something that will never, ever be in line with each other. And so what God is saying is, is there's a division, there's going to be division between the serpent and his seed, which we would say is the Antichrist, and the seed of the woman, which will be Jesus, right? And we're celebrating Christmas, the baby that is birthed, right? The Messiah, and then it goes on there, and it says, he, who? Who's he? Jesus, the Messiah, the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the serpent. He's saying, he, the seed of the woman, will bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, some translations may say, you will crush his head. I like that one better. But the point that, that, that God is making here, so where's the hope? In, in Christ, in the seed of the woman. Already in chapter 3, right after the fall, right after the disobedience of man, God says, I got it. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I've covered it. I'm going to bring my son into the world. And he 
it's going to crush you. This didn't take me off guard. This didn't sneak up on God and say, oh, I didn't believe the serpent could do that. No, he knew that, well, this was all planned for his glory, for his purposes. And so already in the, in the first three chapters, man is something beautiful has been created, all perfect. It's been good. It's, it's, it's very good, God says in creation. Man sins, there's the fall. And immediately God steps in and says, yeah, but I'm going to make a way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make a way for you to be forgiven, to be victorious, because I'm going to send my son into the world through the seed of a woman, and he is going to crush the head of the enemy. So what do we see here? What's the big idea as we jump into our text today? God is the only source of true hope. God is the, our only source of true hope. As I said already, we have hope in nothing else that lasts eternally. Nothing else that you can, no material thing, no, no inanimate thing that you can hold on to that, that lasts eternally. And I could even say, well, what about, Pastor Raleigh, what about other faiths? What about other religions? Well, I would argue that, that those are not true. They are false gospels. They are false truths. And so there's nothing that lasts forever except for Christ and his word. And so when we are found in him and when our hope is set in him and the work that he has done and him overcoming death, that will last forever. So now, let's think about the book of Isaiah for a second. Now, we don't spend, we just, because of, we, we've been spending the last couple of years in the Gospel of John and in the, you know, the book of Hebrews, um, we've spent almost a year and a half, two years in those two books. Uh, we've not got to the Old Testament much. And, and obviously there's great reasons to be in the Old Testament, um, but the New Testament is so rich and, and there's, you know, obviously just, it's great everywhere and so hard to choose. But this morning I've chosen to kind of take us into the Old Testament and look at just seven verses here in Isaiah chapter uh, 9. Now, I, don't, I can't remember exactly, but I believe Isaiah was probably the most quoted of the Old Testament text by the New Testament writers. Jesus quoted it several times. He also, if you remember, when he was 13 years old and he was reading in the temple, what was he reading from? The book of Isaiah, right? Now, when, when did Isaiah live? He lived somewhere around six, 750 years before uh, Christ, all right? So we're talking 750 B.C., Way before any of the apostles, way before anything, uh, you know, that Jesus was being talked about like we see here in the, the New Testament, right? They believed in God. There was prophets speaking for God. Have you ever thought about being a prophet in the Old Testament? No one listened to you. <laughs> and yet, God says, I want you to tell them anyway. And they would and they would live very meagerly, and, and no one would listen. In fact, they were persecuted and, and dishonored and, and kicked to the curb, basically. And yet, what a, what, a, what a heralding call for them to say, this is the truth, and I'm speaking into the, the darkness of the world, and I'm, I'm speaking truth into it because God has given it to me, and I'm telling you, and yet they disobeyed all the time. And isn't that true for all of us? And so here... In about 732 B.C., Israel, as, as many times, has been disobedient to God. They've kind of wandered away. The, the, you know, the, the 12 tribes all have been given parts of, of Judea and, and the northern kingdom, and, and you know, all the tribes are spread out, the tribes of Israel. 
In about 732 B.C., because of their disobedience, God allows the Assyrians to come and conquer them. And then I'll just give you a sneak preview to the future. Then he punishes Assyria for doing it. It's crazy how God can do that and be just about it. He brings them, they conquer them. And so I want to show you a map this morning, just real quick. So here we have basically what we would say is modern day Israel, right? Israel. Right here, Sea of Galilee, Neftali, and Zebulun. Now I want you to commit those two areas of the country. Now those were two of, the, of Jacob's sons, and, and those were they, where they were at. In 732 B.C., the Assyrians come in, and they conquer Manasseh and Gad, right? And they take all this land. Well, actually, in, I think earlier than that, seven, maybe 740. In 732, they take Natali, Naphtali, and Zebulun, and they conquer them. It's harsh. The Assyrians devastate the Jewish people. And they take many of them back in captivity, into Assyrian captivity, and take them away. He said, now, Pastor Raleigh, what does that have to do with hope? I, I, I want you to see that this morning because I want you to commit those two there's two names, Zebulun and Nephtili, and look at where they're at. The Sea of Galilee. We would say that was the area of Galilee. Where did Jesus live? Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Just commit that to memory. Now we're going to come back to that here in a few minutes. Okay? All right. Let's move on. So, if God is our only true source of true hope, right? I want to take this text and I want to see where we can see where we can see the the hope that is in it. What is what is what is happening here? Because when we're reading Isaiah in chapter eight, Isaiah has pronounced judgment pretty much and, and on Israel and the Assyrians coming down and conquering them. And here in nine, in the beginning of nine, he, he's going to talk about where the hope is at. Right? And this is what I want you to see. He, this beautiful seven passages, seven verses, begins to show hope for Israel, but it has wide-ranging effects on all of humanity, and it's hope for us today. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. But there will be no gloom for who who was in anguish. Now, I just want to stop there for a second. He says her. He's talking about Israel, the people of Israel in that area of the country, Right? Natali and, and Zebulun. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, notice that what Isaiah is doing, you're going to see this as we read this. I'll mention this several times. Isaiah is writing as like present tense. He's saying this has happened, but yet many of the things he's talking about have not happened and won't happen for 700 years. But, but the way that God is having him express this, it's so sure that he can say it because it is. Okay? There will be no gloom for those, or gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. What's the former time? In 70 or 732, there was, they were conquered, right? And so he says he brought into contempt that land. In other words, they were disobedient, they were contemporaries, and so he allowed them to be conquered. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So he's made something glorious. What has he made glorious? Right? He has made something glorious. The way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. What is that? Galilee of the nations. It's those two places. You say, well, how's he made that glorious? Right? Because it was just contemptuous what he was saying in 732. But in the latter times, and I'm going to make the argument, and you'll see this, in the latter times are going to be in Jesus' life. And actually, I would say even argue that in, when Jesus starts his ministry in, in about 30 AD, right? Next verse. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now I believe he's, he's talking about many peoples, but specifically I think he's talking about the people that were walking in darkness all the way up until before Christ comes. The people walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, of them, or uh, excuse me, on them, the light has shone. What is God doing here? God is speaking through Isaiah 730 years before Christ. And if you add the 30 years that Christ lives, it's almost 760 years before this is going to come to pass. And he's basically saying is, is that God is going to allow the Syrians to come and conquer Zebulun and Naphtali. And he's going to have contempt for it because of their disbelief. They're in darkness. But 760 years from now, he is going to come and he's going to glory on that area. And how does he do that? By placing his son in Galilee by the sea as he lives in Capernaum. That is the most, one of the most glorious things you could ever hear. This is something that God is doing that we can read. Our hope now is not some fairy tale. It is in something that Isaiah has written down, that God has told him to write down, to say, look, this is what I'm going to do. And I, Isaiah, I want you to tell them. I want to give them hope. Yes, they have been disobedient, but I am going to bring the light of the gospel to bear, and I'm going to send my son. Now, he doesn't say he's going to send his son here, but there's this picture of the light of the gospel, right? And how do we see Jesus as the light? Now, let's fast forward, and let's go into Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13, uh, well, actually 12 through, 12 through 16, eventually. Now, here... Matthew is recording um, as he's, he's speaking about Jesus. Uh, in this text here, we see that the, gospel, the, uh, the John the Baptist has, has come and, and he's baptized Jesus and Jesus is starting his ministry, his three-year ministry. And now John the Baptist gets put in prison uh, for his faith. And here's where we pick it up in the story. It says, now when he heard, this is Jesus now, when he heard, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. There it is. He's withdrawing into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. In the territory of what? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Isaiah here in Matthew. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and a shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. 730 years prior, God says, I'm going to put glory on that part of the country. And we now can see that it is Christ that brought it. It was his work, his plan that brought it, right? Right? 
his plan that brought it. So what do we see here? Our hope rests in God's perfect plan. Our hope rests in God's perfect plan. Once, I, once again, I said, God doesn't, God has already laid out the entire plan for his purposes, for his glory before the foundations of the world. He didn't, he's not working the plan out as it goes. He's not like, you know, it's, it's, it's not like a football game where you're, you're responding to what the other team is doing. God has already laid it all out. He's put it all out. He's sovereign over all of it. He's laid it out. He's going to accomplish something for his purposes. And his ultimate purpose is what? To bring glory to himself. And so he's going he's gonna to do this and he can, he can have Isaiah write it. Is it so? Because it is so. It is so. So our hope rests in God's perfect plan. All right. The second thing we're going to see here in the text is our hope is in God's revealing the light of Christ to us. Our hope is that God will reveal or in the revealing of the light of Christ to us. So here in the text, what does it say? The people walked in darkness. So that's true for all of us. Um, Paul puts it this way in the New Testament in Ephesians. We are dead in our sins. Children by nature, children of wrath. We're we're dead, right? We're in darkness, right? It's used all through Scripture. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Okay, did they have anything to do with making the light possible? No. God provided the light, right? We're, 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 we're dead in our sin. We, we have, we're rebelled, right? They rebelled, and, and God allowed Assyrians to come in and crush them. But God, in his mercy, has done something for his purposes. He has placed Jesus in that land so that those people will see the light of the gospel. They will be the first to see the true light of Christ. It says, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So God is kind of saying, I have shown the light of the gospel on them. They didn't do that themselves. They could not, they didn't control the light. They couldn't conjure it up. This is something that God is doing, right? This is something that God is doing. Once again, 700 and some years beforehand, God is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to shine the light of the gospel on this region and I'm going to primarily do it because I'm going to start my son's ministry right there and he's going to live there. And so this hope that that I want you to have is is rooted in a person. It's rooted in a plan of God. It is is rooted there that the gospel will be shared and be shed into our own hearts. We see this in John, the gospel, John chapter 1. Here when, when God is talking about that Jesus was present at the beginning of creation. In John chapter 1, 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and we would acknowledge that Jesus is the Word. Because on there says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him not, was not anything made that was made. And here it is. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what is, what is the scripture saying here? It says, God has come into the world through Christ and darkness cannot prevail. Can't prevail. <laughs> I love that passage where it says, um, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the kingdom of God. If, you, if you're a, um, like a, 
oh, what's the movie? Uh, Lord of the Rings. This idea of the gates of hell not prevailing. Think about these, these, you know, these people with these big you know, battering rams. And, and this is like the church. The gates of hell will not prevail, right? We will, we will, we will penetrate it. It's, God will do that, right? He is going to be victorious. There's no question. It, it, won't, it won't prevail, right? Not overcome it. You've heard this before, you know, what is the, um, what is darkness? It's the absence of light. So if we shut the lights off in here, it would be dark. As soon as we turn the lights on, darkness can't prevail because the lights come on, right? And, and such a what, a, what a thing written into creation that God has done, right? He said, look, I will prevail and I'm the light. Darkness is nothing. It is, it is, it is void of me. And that, as we said last week, Life, eternal life without God is eternal punishment because you recognize that you do not have the light of the gospel. You do not have light in the world. It's your eternal darkness. And so here he's just saying, and the light shines in the darkness. There's, there's this purpose, this plan that God is doing it. He's bringing light into the, the brokenness of humanity and the brokenness of people's hearts. And he's shining light there and he's saying that darkness shall not overcome it. So, now we've got to wrestle with something. Because now I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And what does Paul say here? He's talking about the gospel and, and how they've shared the gospel and, and with people. And he says, and even if our gospel, the gospel of Christ, is veiled. In other words, even if it can't be seen, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Remember last week we talked about the fact that there'll be two people working in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. This idea that there's not a third option. And so what he's saying is if they don't have the gospel and they're veiled to the gospel, they will perish. So the gospel is essential. It says even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the ones that are perishing... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ because it's for his glory. Who, in the, who is the image of God? So basically he's saying, look, the God of this world is keeping people from seeing Jesus. It's, it's, it's blinding them. It's, it's blinding the eyes of their hearts so they can't see Christ. And you think, but I thought the darkness, can't, you know, the, the, the darkness can't overcome it. That's true. It can't. But for whatever God has in reasons in our walk, we can allow the darkness to blind us. And we talked a little bit about that last week. We, we get so caught up in, in the world, the love of money, the lust of the flesh, and all those things blind us. We allow the serpent to come in and to blind us to all of the, the beautiful things about the gospel and who he is. And it blinds us. It takes our eyes away from it. We move away from scripture. As I've said before, even whole churches now are moving away from the truth of the gospel. It's blinding them. Now, it, you can, I can argue that the light will prevail. It will. But you have to choose to say, I, I, want, to, I want to be in the light. I, I want that. Right in John chapter 3, it says, you know, the verdict is this. Christ has come into the world. Light has come into the world. But people, what? Love the darkness. 
And so we stay in the darkness. But the scripture goes on there. It says, but we need to bring our sin into the light. But you have to do that. That's your responsibility. We bring it in and we, so that God can clearly see us. We confess. We, we make ourselves known to him. We surrender. Whatever you want to say. And so I would ask you, are you allowing the God of this world to blind you to the light of the gospel? It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody and you've been sharing the gospel with them for a while. And as a believer, um, for some of you, I hope, it's so clear. Like, when, like when, I, when I read a text or when I think about creation or when I think about, um, you know, uh, whatever, whatever it may be in the world, it's so clear to me that God is who he says he is. And I, I mean, any... Any, you know, show that I watch on, on nature, anything, I'm like, that is just glorious that God has created this. It's so clear to me. And then I can sit down and talk to somebody who, who does not have Christ in them. They're not in Christ. And they don't see it. And I explain the gospel, and I explain it, and I explain it, and I explain it. And they don't see it, they don't see it, they don't see it. And I'm like, how can you not see this? It's so clear to me. And I constantly have to say, because the God of this world has blinded them to the light of the gospel. It's not because you're not clear. It's not because I'm not clear. It's not because the scripture isn't true. It's because the God of this world is blind in the light of the gospel. I'll give you a, a quick story. So this, this week I um, called and somebody called me and um, I won't get into all the details, but they called me and I've never really talked to this person. Um, they've attended church here for a while, quite a while, maybe six months or so. And we had this great conversation. There's some things going on in their life and they're pretty, they're struggling with some things. And they said, you know, I'm angry about it. And, and I don't know if I should be. And because, and you know, I'm a, I'm a believer. And so I, I kind of began to talk to them about their past and, and their growing up. And, and, um, and their doctrine was, you know, they didn't understand. And I said, so will you go to heaven when you die? And they said, yes. I said, well, why? Well, I, I, I love God. Okay. And I've, I've, I've asked forgiveness. I said, okay. I'll just fast forward here. We talked for a half hour. They never mentioned Jesus. And I said, do you think that um, there's a lot of people that, that love God that won't go to heaven? Oh, yeah, maybe. I said, do you think there's a lot of people that have done bad things that are sorry for what they've done and maybe even ask forgiveness, but they won't go to heaven either? Yeah, well, probably. I said, so why would we go to heaven? And you could see the, the tension. <laughs> I could feel it in the phone call. Uh, I don't know. I said, well, that's a very important question. And then there was one point, it was like, well, I said, and then there was a point that they thought maybe everybody goes to heaven. And I said, well, now, now let's look at Scripture. It says that there's a wide road and a narrow road, and, and many will go on the wide road, and it leads to destruction, and few will find the narrow path. And so really that means that of all the people that have ever lived, majority of them will not go to heaven. And I don't know if that's 60, 40, or 90, 10, but that's kind of what I'm leaning to. And they kind of got it, and they said, you're right. I said, then I see in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says in the end times, you'll come to me and I'll say, I never knew you. Right? Didn't we do these things? I never knew you. And I said, so people won't go. And so why will you go and they won't go? Because that's the, that's the heart of the gospel right there. And finally, as I began to talk to them and I took them through scripture, they were looking through their Bible and they even had things underlined that I was reading to them as, as I was talking to them. They had underlined them previously, but they didn't. See the gospel. See, how can that possibly be? And I believe, this, this is God's doing, I believe that why we were talking, I believe this person saw the gospel for the very first time. It was a beautiful thing. Because the God of this world has blinded people. And so I, 
I had just asked this person, I said, how do you reconcile that you've been coming to this church for six months and in Bible study for a year with people and you don't know what the gospel is? And see, I think you all think that, well, yeah, everybody knows. They do not know because the God of this world has blinded them to it. They can, they can hear it. Look, and I, I told this individual, I said, Brian and I are not, are not theologians. We're not uh, Bible experts, and, you know, expositors completely and all things. But I said, one thing we do is we share the gospel on a regular basis in this church, that Jesus is the only way, and it's only through him and his death and his resurrection, not by works so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's it. We're saved by grace through faith. And yet, people do not hear it. Because God has said the God of this world has blinded them to the light of the gospel. And so here, that's what it says. Keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It goes on in, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter um, 4, verse 5 and 6. It says, for we proclaim Uh, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. What Paul is saying is, we're not proclaiming ourselves, we're proclaiming Christ. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He's writing to the church here. He's saying, look, we're not proclaiming ourselves, we're proclaiming Christ, and we're here to serve you. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, this is Paul talking about the, you know, the, the, the disciples here, who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is he saying there? He says, God has shined in our hearts, has caused us to be born again so that we can be ambassadors for him, for his glory, and shine the light and reflect the light to you. That's really what Paul is saying, that the light of the gospel has come into the Galilee, and now it's in us, it's been given to us, it's been given to the Apostle Paul and others, and our job now is to be there to show and have the knowledge of the glory of the gospel available to everyone else. So where do we see this? We see this again in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So see, we have a responsibility with this hope. If this hope is, is just contained in, in giving us uh, eternal life and to have hope, no, that's not it. It doesn't stop there. It says, no, we've been given this hope so that we may be ambassadors and witnesses of that hope to the world. And so that's why I challenge you almost every message. It's like, what are you doing with this, this spiritual truth? What are you doing with this knowledge that you have? Are, are, you, are you sharing it with your children? I mean, we don't need to say, well, okay, I'm, but I'm not going across, the, I'm not going over the pond and going to other countries. I'm not, I'm not a missionary. Are you sharing it with your kids? Are you making sure that you're teaching them the Bible? Are you showing them the, the beautiful mysteries of Scripture? Just this one little thing about, hey, Kids, 700 years, this guy named Isaiah talked about this place and, and they were dominated by the Assyrians. But, but here in Isaiah, it says that God is going to send his son. And guess where? He came right to the place that God said 730 years later and he brought glory. And that's where Jesus' ministry started. Isn't that awesome? No, we want to turn them over to public education completely and just say, well, they'll get it on their own. They'll figure it out. No, we have a responsibility to be light bearers. All right, so not only do we see that our hope rests in God's perfect plan and that our hope is in him revealing the light of Christ to us, 
but our hope is in God's ultimate victory. Our, our, our hope is in God's ultimate victory. In other words, what do I say by that? In other words, if God is not victorious, if he doesn't defeat death, then it's all for naught. No matter what we know, if God doesn't defeat death, it's, not, it's all for naught. And so what does Isaiah do? He spends about three verses here. Now you gotta remember, he's writing 730 years later. He's, he's talking about two things. He's talking about what's happening in, in, in their time and he's also looking forward. And so what is he saying? He says, you have, now this is his prophetic thing, you have multiplied the nations. Now Isaiah's writing about the future now. And he's writing it in such a way as it's already happened because he's that confident in what's taking place. Speaking to God, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. He's kind of using a few examples here. He says, look, remember the joy of the harvest when we just gathered around Thanksgiving? You know, we had joy sitting around a table and feasting and eating. But think about that. In, 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 more, um, in earlier times, man, what a joy in the harvest. That's where you stored up your food and, and you needed a good harvest. And there's a great joy when, when the harvest is good and brings in a great amount of grain and food. And, and there was this joy that was celebrated with that, that God has provided for them. And she's acknowledging that. It says, and they have grown glad when they divide the spoil. Now he shifts to more of a military type of situation. He says, and when we, when we conquer and when we win in battle, we divide the spoils. And what a great feeling that is. And God is doing this. He's projecting that. He goes on in verse 4. It says, for the yoke of his burden, whose burden? Christ, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, meaning the Father, has broken, have broken as on the day of, the Midi- of Midian. So what is, what is Isaiah saying here? He's saying, look, you have, you have been victorious in Christ. The, the rod of the oppressor, uh, all of this on his shoulders, the burden, the yoke, he is, he's beat it. He, we just went through, right, Hebrews. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's done all of these things. He is now king. He's defeated it all. The rod of the oppressor, he's put it down. His enemies are down. It says, you have broken it as on the day of Midian. And the reason he uses this example, because he knows here his writers understand the incredible victory that took place here in Judges chapter 6 and 7. There was a man named Gideon, and the Midianites, because once again Israel's disobedience, had dominated pieces of Israel, and, and they were dominating, and God basically Long story short, comes to Gideon and says, you're going you're gonna to lead my people and you're going to defeat the, the Midianites. And he's not really all thrilled about that. He's willing, but he doesn't know how he's going to do that. And so he says, okay. And he's got like 32,000 men, Israel. And God says, that's too many. He says, what do you mean it's too many? He said, no, if you do that with 32,000 men, you will get the glory. I won't get the glory. And who's this all about? It's about me. So he says, okay, I'll basically, I'm kind of paraphrasing here. I'll cut 22,000 men and we're just going to do 10,000 men. And he says, God, no, no, that's still too many. Gideon's like, come on. So he says, he tells him to get out of the water and depends on how the guys drink and this, that, and the other. He gets down to 300 men. And God says, okay, now you're ready. And so he goes to war and they win. You don't think that that story was being told over and over and over and over again? (laughs) How God showed up and was glorious and defeated the Midianites with 300 men? And so when Isaiah is writing here, they get it. And when he's using that analogy, they're saying, yes, God is victorious. He is going to be the one victorious, and it's all him. 
right? He can do it. He can do anything, right? And he will be victorious. Verse 5, he kind of concludes this in Isaiah. He says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And you're saying, what the heck does that mean? Right? Because when the battle is over, what they would do is they would roll up all of the bloody garments and all of the debris and they would burn it. And so what Isaiah is saying is, is it's over. It's done. The Messiah has come. He's going to be victorious. Now, remember, he's 732 years earlier. He's writing about what Christ is going to do, right? And the victory he's going to have. Now, how do we see that victory in the New Testament? Just one place. I'll give you a, a peek at it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, here's the plan, right? According to his great mercy, he has caused, it's his work again, we see it, he has caused us to be born again. He, he shines the light into our hearts. And darkness not, cannot overcome it. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, right? Because Christ defeats death. So he's a living hope. He's not a dead hope. He's not a stagnant. He's not a, a terminal hope. He's a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here is the realization of the victory that Isaiah is writing about. Christ overcomes death. He puts it all away. It's all burned up. He's victorious. He becomes the king. So what's the next thing that we see here in the text? Our hope is in God's provision for a perfect, of a perfect king. So our hope is that God will provide us a perfect king in his provision. And, and we, we believe it to be so. We, we trust it even as we celebrate the birth. We're celebrating the birth because we believe that God is going to provide the perfect king in Christ. And when we see that he did in scripture. He was the perfect king. But we, it's, it's still not fully realized because the second coming hasn't happened yet, which is why we talked about it last week. But someday it will be fully realized. But here he gives us a picture of from the beginning of the birth in the first advent, the, the coming, all the way to the second coming, I believe. And he says here in verse 9, or verse 6, it says, For us a child is born, for to us a son is given. Right? And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He's saying to us, a Savior is going to come. Right now, 732 years earlier, he's saying that Jesus is going to come, and he's going to come as a person, and he is going to break the yoke of all the enemies, and the government is now going to be on his shoulders. It's going to be his, not a human government, not a fallen government, not a rebellious government, but upon him. A son is given. He's going to be the son of God. It's not just anybody, but it's going to be the son of God. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is God represented in the Son. Fifth thing I want to show you. Our hope is in God's supreme power. Our hope is in God's supreme power. Sometimes we use the word sovereignty, which means that God is able to do anything he wants, and he sustains all things. We, we saw that in the book of uh, John there when it basically talks about, the, you know, all things were made through him and by him and for him. We see that in Colossians, and that God sustains all things. He is sovereign over all things. 
Because our hope is in that supremacy, in that sovereignty. Because if God is not sovereign over all things, then he cannot be counted faithful and we cannot trust him and have hope in him to do what he says he will do if he doesn't have supreme power. But if he has supreme power, he can do it. And so what do we see? As Isaiah leaves us on a really good note in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of, of, of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom... To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord, he will do this. Or the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what's, what, notice what he says here. Notice the, the beauty of the majesty and the, the, the supreme power. What, what, is, what is Isaiah saying here? He's talking about Christ, right? Of the increase of his government... End of peace, there will be no end. No one's going to conquer him. No one's going to dethrone him. This guy that comes, the Savior, will be it forever and ever and ever. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he has the power to establish it. He has the power to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And from this time forth, forevermore. So not only can he establish it, he can hold it and he can sustain it forever. And I love the last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is saying he will do it. He can do it. He has the power to do it. He has the plan. It's already been laid out. He's provided the king. He's provided all of it. He is going to, he's already done it. Isaiah is looking at it and he's seeing that it's already done. It's already done. It just hasn't come to pass yet. But what Isaiah is saying, it's already done. I love it how Paul puts it in Romans 15, verse 4. As we study this Old Testament, I go back to this passage where Paul says, For whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So my hope this morning for you is, is that because of what we're reading today in Isaiah, which is the former things, that we will have hope, that we will be encouraged, that this, this truth will give us endurance. Because I don't know about you, but in today's culture, we are struggling to find hope in some places. When we look around, I am, it is dark, <laughs> and it is fast becoming nighttime in our culture. But we don't want to meditate on that. Yes, we need to know that that is happening and we need to say, yep, God said it was going to be that way, but my hope is in Christ. My hope is in Christ and I can still see Christ working. I can still see, yes, the God of this world is blinding people, but I am the light of, God is working in me and I can shine the light of the gospel in other people's hearts and I can be part of that glorious hope that he has given people. There's nothing like it. Are you, are you privileged that God has given you the light of the gospel to share? The greatest thing in all of creation as a gift for us to be able to share. That we can be part of someone coming to have eternal life by just sharing what God has given us and shined into our hearts. What's your takeaway today? Got a few things, so don't pack up. Christ is our only true hope. 
I think that's easy enough said, and we've established that in our time together in the Scripture today. God is, Christ is our only source of true hope. Nothing else will last. Nothing else compares. Nothing else will truly set us free. Nothing else will, will deliver us from the, from the judgment of sin and death. Nothing. Not any good works that you can do. Not, not, not a long life. Not all the forgiveness you can ask for. Only the work of Christ dying for our sins and defeating death is sufficient. And our hope must be in him and in a person. And so the question that I then would ask you, is your hope truly set on Christ? Or are you giving it lip service? And sometimes we don't know until the, the pressure is on, right? Sometimes we're, we think it is, but then sometimes we, the pressure comes on and then, you know, you find out that you've been diagnosed with, with a very serious illness and you realize that death is more possible than you thought it was. And then you have to decide, is, where's my hope at? Where, where's my hope at? This person I was talking to the other day, that's what led them to call me. They'd been diagnosed with something that was pretty serious. And they called me to talk to me. They weren't calling to find out where they could find hope. But I believe that God uses our sicknesses and our sufferings to draw us to places where we can hear the truth of the gospel so that we can have hope in times of suffering. And I told this person this morning, and I said, isn't that beautiful how God cares about us that way? This person never would have called me without that diagnosis. And that person never would have heard the truth of the gospel in a way that I think God wanted them to hear it if that wouldn't have happened. And so we need to have... We need to rejoice and set our hope truly there. We can see this in the book of 1 Peter. I'll just read you a couple passages and we'll call it quits. 1 Peter is all about suffering, the early church suffering, and Peter's encouraging them to suffer, but yet but to do it with, with great grace and, 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 and hope, right? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Set your mind fully there, not divided. Not, and, and the problem with, with humanity is we're double-minded. We think this and we also think this, and they, they oppose each other. And he's saying, I want you to set your mind fully on the gospel, on the grace that is provided through Christ. Fully. And I would... He's speaking to the people at this time, the, the suffering there under, under the, the government. But I would tell you that that's a word for us today, that we need to set our minds fully in this dark season of, of history, fully on Christ. And then what's the next step to that? He goes on there in chapter 1, verse of, or chapter 3 of 1 Peter, and chapter, uh, verse 15 and 16. He says, But in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. There it is. He's saying, look, I've given you this incredible hope. I've delivered you from, from all of this. Yes, you're going to suffer. Yes, you're going to have hardships. But you have a hope. And, and are you ready to, def to show that hope to people? Can you explain that hope that you have in me, in Christ? And then he goes on there and says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So those of you that are out loving to share the gospel. Make sure you're doing it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience means that you're living rightly before the Lord. You're not living in sin, but yet you have this outward view that you want to show everybody. So that when you are slandered, 
Those who revile you, your good conscience or your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He's just basically saying live rightly before the Lord. Live holy before the Lord. Yes, share the gospel. Yes, provide the hope that you have in Christ. But you need to be living rightly before the Lord. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Are you living rightly? And are you, are you able to share the hope of the gospel? Do you want to share the hope of the gospel? Do you see the need to share the hope of the gospel? So what's your next step? may surprise you a little bit where I go here, but I want you to rest in the hope that we have in Christ. It's going to be a busy season, be a lot of stress. Some of you have lost loved ones in the last year, so it's going to be hard this year. Some of you may financially aren't, aren't where you need to be to, to want to do the things you want to do, but remember, it's not about all those things. It's not about all that stuff. In fact, I feel so bad for the Western culture. We have made Christmas something that God, I think, never intended it to be. Like, yes, we should celebrate the birth of Jesus. That is good, and, and I'm going to go through all of that. But now it is like the expectation of our joy that we should have at this season and the happiness is so big that none of us can ever achieve that. Whether it's from the cheesy, you know, uh, Christmas movie that, that love always works out perfectly and all these things happen perfectly and, and everybody gets what they want and, and, you know, your house has to be decorated this way. I, you know, my wife has been under the weather a little bit and we've been watching some of those cheesy movies and, and, um, and you know, I've enjoyed them some. And uh, I will tell you, though, that I watch them and I walk away feeling about this big. Right? I mean, this guy is the perfect Prince Charming. He does this perfectly, does that perfectly. They have this perfect love, and they walk off into the sunset perfectly at Christmas time under a beautiful home that's decorated or a castle. And, and I'm like, and I look at our life, and I look at it, and I'm like, wow. We're coming up short, sweetie. Right? And, and I see it in myself. And so, but, that's, but just think about how that, the world has put that expectation out there so that we feel defeated. Don't, don't think that that's by accident. That's a strategic thing by the enemy. And so I want you to rest in the hope of Christ. Like if, you, if you've been born again, if, you are, if Christ is in you, I don't care what's happening in the world. I don't care how, whether you don't have any Christmas presents, you don't have a tree. If, if life is hard right now, I'm sorry. If you've lost loved ones, man, you need to rest in Christ. He holds you. He is gonna, he's eternal. He will never let you down. I'll leave you with this last scripture and then I'll pray. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of peace, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What's the point? We can live at peace, we can have joy if we live in the the Spirit, if the Spirit allows us to abound in Christ and we will have hope because we understand that God has made the plan, he's delivered us, he's, he has supreme power, he's given us a king. It's his plan. It's going to work out just the way he wanted it to, and he's doing it for his glory, and we are privileged to be a part of that plan. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, as we look back into these these beautiful seven verses tucked in here in chapter 9. What a picture of your provision for us. We, we do not have a blind faith, Father. We have a faith that rests on the beautiful truthfulness of history, of Scripture, of transformed lives, 
of prophecy and that Isaiah would speak for you and remind us and encourage us and give us hope that you are going to complete whatever it is that you've set out before time to do. And you've demonstrated that in these seven verses for your perfect glory. Father, may we see it. May we be transformed by it. May we be overwhelmed by it. And for the person that is here today that has not been transformed into the new creation, Father, may your light pierce their heart and their mind this morning. May something that we have said, may the Holy Spirit work in such a way that the heart will be transformed by the light of the gospel and their life will be forever changed for your glory and for their good. And Father, for those of us that are laboring side by side for your purposes and for your work to be done in this world, give us strength. Help us to be rooted in Scripture. Help us to be encouraged by the the Scriptures. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to pray for one another, Father. But ultimately, help us to keep our eyes set on Christ and rejoice that you have overcome the world. And we are yours. You hold us. And no one will take us from your hand because you have all power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.